0: In the early years of the 6th century, a young man named Benedict abandoned his, his studies in the city of Rome. And he ventured out into rural parts of Italy and dedicated himself to a life of fasting and prayer and service. A couple decades later, Benedict founded a new community of monks who lived and worked and prayed together. And to help them do that, he wrote up a a set of rules, or rule as he called it, to govern their common life. The rule of Saint Benedict is probably the single most influential thing ever written in the history of Christian monasticism. If you ever get a chance to read it, you'll, you'll see why. It's filled with all kinds of guidance and instruction on every aspect of daily life within a spiritual community, from how people join the community to how authority is exercised and decisions are made. There are rules for how to pray and how to go about your daily work, for how to distribute common property and what to do if someone violates the rule. But of all of the instructions it contains, one of the most interesting and commonly discussed is the rule that tells the monks how they should respond when a guest or traveler shows up unexpectedly. All guests, regardless of how rich or poor they may be, regardless of where they're coming from or where they're going, anyone who shows up to the community, Benedict says, must be warmly received, must be fed, must be prayed for, and engaged in conversation. What's more, the the abbot or the head of the community is expected to wash the feet of the guest and then to eat with him or her. Even if the abbot is fasting, Benedict says that he should break his fast to have a meal with the guest. In other words, one of the, the greatest and the most important tasks for Christian monks is that of hospitality. Of course, in some ways, you could say that, well, there's nothing really that surprising or unique about this. Lots of cultures around the world prize hospitality. Benedict wasn't doing anything new by telling people to be hospitable. On the other hand, not everything that Benedict says about hospitality is is quite so universally accepted. Take, for instance, what he says about, about to whom hospitality should be shown. Most people are pretty particular about who they welcome in into their home and sit down for a meal with. You don't just invite anybody into your house. You invite people that you like and admire and you, that you want to get to know better. You try to confer your hospitality on worthy guests. But Benedict says that the monks must regard all guests regardless of how worthy they may be. They must welcome them. Actually, he goes even further than that. What he actually says is that great care and concern are to be shown in receiving pilgrims and the poor. Uh, That's a very striking thing to say, especially during a time and context in which the the poor were often regarded as really having no worth at all. Why should they be given special concern and welcomed as if they were worthy guests? And and why is hospitality so important anyway? Well, Benedict actually gives implicit answers to both these questions by citing two different passages from the Bible. First, he cites Matthew chapter 25, where Jesus says that whoever receives the least of these receives him. That's why it's so important that we pay particular care to the poor and to travelers, Benedict says, because because in them more particularly Christ is received. But why is this obligation toward hospitality there in the first place? Benedict also answers that question a little less directly, but he answers it by saying that after the feet of a guest have been washed, the monks should recite a verse from Psalm 48. God, we have received your mercy in the midst of your temple. Now, at first, that May seem like a rather strange choice of a scripture to read when washing someone's feet, but if you think about it, there, there's a clear logic. We are those who have received and experienced the mercy and kindness of God. We have been welcomed and washed by Him, and so, for that reason, we extend welcome to one another. In other words, showing hospitality to one another welcoming and eating with each other. This is how Benedict envisioned monks to live out the reality of the gospel, of what was real about them. And of course, Benedict wasn't alone. Hospitality, it's a, it's a major theme in the story of Jesus, as it's told in the New Testament gospels. On numerous occasions, we we read stories about Jesus attending meals and eating with people and receiving it and extending hospitality. As one scholar puts it, in reference to the Gospel of Luke, in the Gospels, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. And just who attended those meals, who it is that was welcomed by Jesus, that was a big deal. As Bishop N.T. Wright says, eating with sinners was one of the most characteristic and striking marks of Jesus' regular activity. What people often notice about Jesus and what often bothered them about him is precisely who he ate with, to whom he showed welcome. But Jesus, as controversial as he was, he refused to change his habits because the way that he welcomed people it was directly tied to the good news that he came to proclaim. If he didn't welcome them, if he, if he just went along with the normal ways of the world, and if he treated only certain people as worthy of welcome, well, then he would be denying the very thing he preached. And for the apostle Paul, it was the same. You know, it's very illuminating to notice in his letters to notice what Paul approves of and what he applauds. But it's also very telling to pay attention to what makes him mad. And if there's anything that made the apostle Paul mad, it was Christians who said they believed the gospel and then denied it by the way they ate meals. In his letter to the Galatians, Paul talks about the time that Peter and some of the other apostles were visiting some churches in Antioch, and they began to separate themselves from the Greek and the Roman Christians and and eat their meals with their fellow Jews, and Paul was infuriated, and he told Peter off right to his face because, he said, what Peter was doing, it wasn't just rude. It was a denial of the gospel itself. On another occasion, Paul writes his letter to some Christians in Corinth, 1 Corinthians. And he tells them off because they were eating together in such a way that separated the rich from the poor. And Paul said that, look, if you're going to do that, it's probably better off if you just never come together at all. Because, again, by eating that way, These Corinthian Christians were acting as if the gospel isn't true. And that's also why, as we're reading the book of Romans, it's why we need to pay very close attention to what Paul says in chapter 15, verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. In some ways, I think you could say that Paul's entire understanding of the gospel and Christian life is summarized in that one little verse. Let me explain. First, take that phrase in the middle, as Christ has welcomed you. Remember what I've been saying from the very beginning of our study. What's the major theme of Paul's letter to the Romans? It's the good news of the righteousness of God, the good news of what God has been doing through the death and resurrection of Jesus to set the world to rights. It's the the news, the announcement, that despite our guilt, despite our corruption, despite our, our bondage and our captivity to the powers of sin and death, despite our addiction to these things, God has found a way to free us and to make us welcome. We, the unrighteous, the ungrateful, the immoral, we have been given this gift of peace and welcome through the person of Jesus. In other words, Christ has welcomed you. That's the gospel. And because of that, or as Paul puts it, therefore you are to welcome one another. Now, from the beginning of chapter 12, you could say that Paul's focus has been, it's been less a theological discussion of the gospel and more on instructions about practical Christian living, what you should do and what you should not do. But, you know, to divide it up like that is a bit misleading because, as we've already discussed, the ethical instructions that Paul's giving, they're not somehow separate from the gospel he preaches. They're a direct result of it. Don't think too highly of yourself. Don't act with envy or greed or jealousy toward one another. Associate with the lowly. Weep with those who weep. Owe nothing but to love one another. Don't insist on your own rights, but take responsibility for each other's physical and spiritual good. This is all the stuff he's been saying for the last several chapters. None of these are none of these are arbitrary pieces of moral advice. For Paul, these are the ways that Christians live out the reality of what God has done for them and how they live out the reality of who they have become in union with Jesus Christ. And it's especially important in the way that Christians treat one another across across old dividing lines of social or ethnic division. It's why Paul spends so much time talking about the equality of the rich and the poor and how they're treated. It's why he spends so much time talking about how Jews and Gentiles should interact with each other, because he's worried that just like the apostle Peter and just like those Christians in Corinth, that the Romans they might be tempted to fall back into the old patterns of relating to each other, to the old ways of thinking about who they should associate with or eat meals with, who's important and who's not. As he points out in Romans 15, verses 8 through 12, Jesus became a servant for the sake of both Jews and Gentiles. He died so that they might both be made welcome. Therefore, unless Christians... Unless they want to pretend that Jesus didn't really do that, we have no choice but to do as both Paul and Benedict said we should. We have been welcomed, and so we must welcome one another. We have been joined to Christ. So we must show hospitality toward one another as if, as Benedict says, as if to Christ himself. And finally, in this verse, chapter 15, verse 7, Paul instructs us to welcome one another as he puts it, for the glory of God. Now the language of glory, it's come up a number of times in our study of Romans so far. You remember it came up in chapters 5 and 8 when Paul was discussing the glory of our future life. came up in chapter 11 when he was talking about the overwhelming glory of God's wisdom, his love, his plan for his people. And now, again, Paul says that we should with one voice glorify God and through our welcome of one another bring glory to God. You might ask, well, how does our hospitality, how does our care for one another bring glory to God? Well, keep in mind that when Paul talks about the glory of God, he's talking both about the reality of God's own nature, his wisdom, his knowledge, his power, who and what he is. And he's talking about the the demonstration and the celebration of that nature in the world. So here when Paul says that we should welcome one another for the glory of God, what he seems to be suggesting is that our hospitality is actually a a reflection, It's it's a mirror as it were, of who God is in his own nature. God is the one who welcomes the unwelcome. He has overturned the world's categories of worthy and unworthy. He has given infinite worth to those who were considered of no importance. He has become a servant to Jews and Gentiles alike. And so when we do the same, we are putting his glory on display for the world to see. Welcoming strangers, sharing meals with others, with those in need. It all just seems kind of small, so trivial, just a matter of politeness, doesn't it? Well, not for Paul. For him, these behaviors are nothing less than a, they're they're a dramatic enactment of the good news of the glorious righteousness of God. Now, I began this lesson by talking about what we can learn from St. Benedict and his rules for monastic living. I'd like to end it by thinking about what we can learn about hospitality from the weekly Christian practice of receiving communion. Because in many ways, this this practice in and of itself is an act of welcome. It's also a, a regular reminder for those who participate in it. It's a reminder of what the gospel says to our relationship with each other. As the former Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams once observed. One of the most transformingly surprising things about Holy Communion is that it obliges you to see the person next to you as wanted by God. God wants that person's company as well as mine. Of course, that doesn't mean we always act accordingly. Sometimes we can kneel at a rail and receive communion with people who are wildly different from us. And then we can still revert back to our old ways of assigning worth and importance to some people as opposed to others, to being choosy about who we want to eat and associate with. But at the very least, communion suggests to us that when we do that, maybe we aren't seeing the world rightly. Maybe we haven't yet come to terms with the fact that God himself wants the company of the person beside me, that Jesus became a servant to make him or her welcome, and maybe that that should have a drastic impact on the way that we relate to one another. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God.